Good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Uh, I want to welcome you all to a very special conversation this evening on uh, a topic that I think is near and dear to so many of our teachers and so many of the students, and that's this question of progress. And what's the state of the world around us tonight? Tonight's conversation is a special alumni event exclusively for alumni of attendees of a variety of different kinds of sphere events, but we wanted to make this opportunity specifically available to all of you, our educators and part of our broader community as a means of really, well, showing our gratitude for the work that you do. We know it's been an incredibly challenging year with so many of you working through a variety of different educational formats, whether that's in-person, online, hybrid, and in some cases, bouncing back and forth. The work that you do has never been more important than it is right now. So thank you all again so much for what you do with us. Uh, to show our gratitude, we wanted to do a couple of different things. One, uh, some of you hopefully have already started to receive it, but we have shipped out a copy of uh, the subject of tonight's uh, conversation, 10 Global Trends, trend that every smart person needs to know and many other trends that you'll find interesting. All of you should be receiving that in the mail. Those went out last week, but with the vagaries of the postal system, some of them may not have made it to you yet, uh, but do know they are on their way. But the other thing that we wanted to do is to take an opportunity to make a conversation available to you exclusively with one of the authors of that book. So tonight, it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, Marion Tupi with us. He's a senior fellow at Cato Institute, the editor of humanprogress.org, as well as uh, the senior fellow of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and one of the authors of the Simon Project. Uh, he's also, like I mentioned, one of the co-authors of the book for tonight, uh, along with Ronald Bailey from the Reason Foundation. It's a fantastic book. I think uh, Marion's going to have so much to say about it that I think will be appealing to all of you and to so many of your students. Uh, just a couple of quick reminders and to talk about the logistics for the evening tonight. This is an off-the-record conversation, uh, so please feel free to be candid, to raise questions, to engage in all sorts of ways that you'd like to, though, of course, always modeling that measure of civil discourse uh, that you all do so well. The other reminder, as far as logistics go, I'm going to turn it over to Marion here in a second, who's got a short presentation to share for you about some of the highlights of his work, both in the book, but also more broadly on humanprogress.org, which if you haven't yet checked out, I would highly recommend. It's one of the finest properties that I think an educator can take advantage of and using in their classrooms. Uh, with that, then, we'll have Marion talk for a bit, and then we'll go into Q&A afterwards. So by all means, shoot your questions in the chat box as they come up along the way, and we'll tackle them. But we'll make sure to have plenty of time at the end for you to be able to dig into those conversations. Uh, without further ado, then, let me turn it over to my colleague. Marion, go ahead and take it away, sir. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? OK, that's the key. Um, well, thank you very much to all of you for attending. It's been a very interesting year, to say the least. Um, and it's been, uh, some, some might think that it's been a very difficult to be an optimist in 2020, but I'm going to try to convince you that there is still scope for optimism. And to do that, I've chosen four very easy subjects. Uh, I'm going to start with COVID, then I'm going to move on to race, then inequality, and uh, we are going to end with the environment, okay? So <laughs> let's start uh, by me sharing, if I can do that, um, my screen. 
presumably you can see that. Okay, very good. So in front of you, what you have is really um, a, a short summary of the speed of vaccine developments over the last uh, three and a half thousand years or so. And uh, what you will notice is that uh, the speed of vaccine developments or uh, developments of medical treatments uh, to the point where they start saving human lives has actually been getting incredibly short. So let's start uh, all the way back in Pharaonic Egypt, three and a half thousand years ago, where we had the first examples of polio and smallpox. It took about three and a half thousand years for us to come up with a vaccine to solve those problems, which is to say that for thousands of years, people were dying of things. They didn't know what they were. They didn't certainly know. They couldn't name them. Um, and they certainly couldn't cure them. It was only with the arrival of modern medical sciences, um, and especially in the last uh, century, that is to say in the 20th century, that uh, because of microscopes and antibiotics and genetic decoding and all sorts of other things that we were able to come up with vaccines against uh, things that have plagued humanity for millennia. So as you can see, polio, three and a half thousand years, smallpox, 3,000 years, cholera, 2,500 years since the time that we had the first uh, intimations in the written record that people were dying of cholera to the point where it was resolved. Typhoid, also 2,000 years, measles, 1,500 years, uh, rubella, 400 years, diphtheria, 300 years. Ebola is a very interesting example. It occurs in Africa about 43 years ago for the first time that we know of. Um, but then really, uh, it, it was during the last outbreak um, in the, in the uh, I think it was in 2011, uh, that the world has decided, okay, let's put some money behind it, let's put some brain power behind it. And um, we've had a vaccine for about five years now. Now, this, is, this, this uh, particular slide is a little bit outdated because it says that COVID-19 uh, was four months since the discovery of COVID in China in December of 2019 to the time when the human trials started. But if, if the FDA approves the vaccines which are um, uh, in front of it currently, then we'll be able to update this particular slide and say that the COVID vaccine was produced within a year of the discovery of the disease. Now, what does that mean? That means that we are re really living in, in an age of miracles. Never before in human history had it been possible to develop a vaccine against a deadly pathogen within a year. And that I think is a testament to a number of things. One is the incredible wealth of our society and the fact that we can maintain tens of thousands of highly skilled and very expensive professionals who devote their lives toward uh, scientific research. We can also maintain very sophisticated computers, supercomputers, artificial intelligence, and so forth, uh, which we can then employ in uh, in the discovery of new uh, of new solutions, or rather, of solutions to 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 pathogens. And um, uh, of course, uh, the private sector has delivered uh, in terms of uh, these vaccines but it took a lot of taxpayer money. In other words, it was decided that private sector would come up with, um, with these vaccines, but those vaccines were pre-purchased by the taxpayer, by governments around the world. 
in order to motivate, in order to, um, um, in order to incentivize private co corporations to really do a lot of work and investment in these vaccines. But the bottom line is, uh, we've managed it, we've done it. Uh, it's been a tough year, a lot of people have died, but again, nothing like this has ever been done in human history. So let's keep that in mind as a silver lining to this year of pandemic. I wanna talk a little bit about equality because I know that that's a hot subject in high schools at universities. Economic inequality is something that uh, the Biden administration, the coming in Biden administration is going to prioritize. And on this particular slide, what you see is a decline in international inequality. Now that may surprise you because you hear a lot about um, rising economic inequality around the world. And in fact, domestic inequality and global inequality are in a sort of inverse relationship to some extent, which is to say the following. When you have countries that are very economically equal, uh, let's say that the socialist countries of the former Eastern Bloc and so forth, um, they tend to be also very poor. And when that happens, other countries take off and a huge gap opens in terms of income. Now, what has happened after the fall of communism in 1989 was that in a lot of countries that we used to refer to as the second world, socialist countries, domestic inequality increased tremendously. For the first time in many, many decades, people were allowed to open businesses and to become rich. As they did that, the economy as a whole in formerly socialist countries, now capitalist countries, has taken off and grew. And because those countries economically grew, they were able to catch up with the advanced countries of the West. So, as I said, there is an inverse relationship between them. There is very often a, an inverse relationship between domestic inequality and international inequality. When you have domestic economic inequality, and a lot of people are able to become rich by applying their uh, skill sets and their knowledge uh, to provide services and goods to other people, you also generate much more economic growth and therefore you are able to close the gap between your own country and the rest of the world. So even though we've had uh, increase in economic inequality internally in countries, we also had a decline in inequality between countries. So some, that's something to, to keep in mind. Now, the reasons for the increase in inequality within countries, um, there are a lot of possible reasons for that. Some of them, um, you know, there, there are so many that I cannot go into details, but some of them include things like, if you have a good product, in the era of globalization, you're not only selling it to your own country, you're selling it to the rest of the world. So instead of having a captive audience or captive market of 300 million Americans, you can now sell it to almost 8 billion people around the world. So think about all those people who started Facebook or Apple or Amazon and so forth. Because they are now supplying goods and services to 8 billion people, they can also become tremendously wealthy. And that's, I think, part of the reason why we have uh, why we've had an increase in inequality 
um, in the era of globalization over the last 40 years. The market is simply big. And uh, if, you, if you provide something that other people want, you can make much more money. There are other reasons for that. Uh, we can get into those in, in uh, Q&A, but let's move on. Obviously, it's been a very difficult year for race relations uh, in the United States, um, even though the opinion polls uh, that have been tracked by Pew and um, by Gallup and, and so on and so forth have been showing an improvement in racial attitudes um, uh, or, or rather a decline in racist attitudes in the United States. Um, when it comes to things like interracial marriage, uh, integrated schools and so forth, that's no longer really uh, much of a debate uh, amongst, uh, amongst Americans of all colors. Um, that particular ship has sailed. So what explains what's been happening in the country? Well, obviously, um, Excessive police brutality may well be one of the reasons, but I would suggest that there is another reason for that. And that is this, progress tends to mask itself, which is to say that every time you improve something, that improvement becomes your base level. And you judge all the problems that remain in the country from that base level. You no longer compare the problems that remain in your country to what it was before you have accomplished whatever progress you have accomplished. Um, you, your, your expectations have risen. So obviously in the United States, I'm, I'm a newly coined American, but I know my history a little bit. Uh, in the United States, um, Originally, there was slavery. Slavery got taken care of in the 1860s. After that, you had um, things like lynchings, which disappeared by the 1920s, by the 1930s. Uh, then there was Jim Crow and separation of races all the way uh, into the 1950s and the 1960s. So that got taken care of in uh, uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the Great Society and um, Civil Rights Administration. What remained after that was overt expressions of racism, such as calling black people the N-word um, and so forth. And that became a taboo in this country. So what remains really is uh, what is now considered to be progressions and also uh, covert racism or intimations of racism. In other words, people thinking that you may be thinking racist thoughts even though you no longer feel comfortable in modern America expressing them. So there you can see those steps that I have outlined where the country has accomplished um, um, certain, certain milestones in uh, racial equality, but that became the basis on which we have, we have judged the problems that remain until we get to a, to a place where microaggressions, uh, for example, are a serious concern for a lot of Americans. Um, again, we can talk about that more in Q&A, but I would submit for the time being that anyone who is saying that nothing has changed in the United States over the last 50 years simply doesn't have the right data, doesn't have probably any data, and uh, is not 
reflecting the reality uh, of, of uh, race relations in the United States, which are certainly much better uh, than what they were um, uh, only a few decades ago, where crude jokes and N-words were flying around and nobody sane would do that today. Um, I want to conclude by two or three slides about the environment, because once again, that is something that the Biden administration wants to prioritize. And it is something uh, that young people in high school and uh, also in, uh, at university are deeply concerned about. Um, most people agree that climate change is happening. Um, most of us would say that climate change has always happened. I do not believe that there is any solid evidence to support the notion that the world is going to end in eight or 10 years time. I think that uh, we have decades to adjust and to come up with technological solutions to climate change. Um, but regardless of where you stand about the seriousness of um, uh, climate change, I think it is important to also look at the things that humanity is already doing in order to improve the state of the environment. This particular slide shows you an increase in tree coverage of um, um, in the world uh, between 1982 and 2016. Um, what many people don't realize is that CO2, of which there is more in the atmosphere as a result of human activity, of that, that there is no doubt, that CO2 is also tree food. And uh, when there's more tree food, trees like to grow. And so a study in uh, uh, Nature magazine in 2018 found that uh, between 1982 and 2016, the size of Alaska and Montana combined, we have added the trees to the world tree coverage, the size of Alaska and Montana combined, which I think is a tremendous, tremendous thing. Uh, on the right hand side of this particular slide, you have different regions of the world. And basically uh, the thing to look out for is the blue dot. The blue dot symbolizes the net gain net net gain of tree coverage. And as you can see, tremendous increase in tree coverage in uh, Asia, Europe, North America, um, even Oceania. In Africa, we have a tiny little decline still, uh, but, um, but it's almost imperceptible. And of course, we still have deforestation going on in uh, Brazil and in South America. This is the growth of protected uh, areas. Uh, these are, uh, uh, I believe, marine um, uh, and terrestrial areas um, since, uh, since the late 19th century. And as you can see, uh, there has been a tremendous increase in marine and also in terrestrial areas, which are now protected from human exploitation, where the animals, where the wildlife, can roam freely and do whatever animals do in their spare time. <laughs> and uh, let me just end on this particular slide. And that is that we are taking CO2 seriously in some very important ways. 
this is the amount of CO2 that is being, that is being um, released into the atmosphere per $1 of economic output, okay? So obviously what you wanna do, if you want to preserve modern standards of living, if you wanna preserve civilization and you wanna make people happy, you wanna make sure that they have all the things that they need. You know, they have a house, they have a car, they have a full fridge, can take trips abroad and so on and so forth. But what you wanna do is to do it in such a way that it will be environmentally neutral, that it doesn't destroy the environment. And the good news is, that uh, certainly uh, that globally, but most importantly in, in wealthy countries, uh, we are able to produce more and more goods with uh, fewer and fewer uh, CO2 um, particles being, being, uh, being released into the atmosphere. So those are just uh, some um, opening remarks um, and uh, let's open it to Q&A and please feel free to, um, to question, complain and criticize. Barry, and thanks so much for that excellent introduction to the, the conversation tonight. I know there's so many more fascinating points inside the, the 10 Trends book and hopefully we can get to, to many of those in our conversation. Uh, a lot of great questions in the chat so far. One I wanted to, to frame to begin with and this has come up a couple of times. Uh, especially in relation to this question of race relations. So it feels like in many ways, like you mentioned, uh, we still feel like things are bad, right? There's still challenges in that, uh, the relations between the races, there was the, the protesting that happened this summer. One of the questions that's come up is, well, where do we, where do we go from here? That is, we've made these, these major steps, right? With the abolition of slavery, with the movement toward the ending of Jim Crow, the movement toward ending segregation. Of course, there's still so many challenges there, but with this topic of something like systemic racism, with this topic of serious challenges that are felt still, how do we continue to make that movement? That is, as we've made so much progress, how do we continue to make progress? Well, wherever we go, we have to go very carefully because remember, that multiracial democracies that are at peace are actually a very rare animal in the world. In other words, to keep very diverse societies at peace without being on each other's throats is something that humanity hasn't been particularly good at doing because for the last 300,000 years, which is to say as long as Homo sapiens has existed in this world, we have moved and existed in small groups where a different group almost invariably meant danger, um, almost invariably led to war. So we are tribal. This is one thing to remember. And the second thing is that we are zero sum creatures. Well, that means that until about 200 years ago, which is to say that for the first 99.02% of our existence as a species, the only way that you could move ahead in the world was by taking stuff that was already produced by somebody else, okay? 
So what that means is that whenever some people have a disproportionate success in a certain area, say banking or culture or whatever, we seem to think that it was taken from somebody else. That's the zero sum thinking. Um, if nothing is equally distributed, it means that there has to be some sort of a nefarious uh, reason why um, distribution of resources is not equal across society. Now, of course, in the past, that was certainly true, not only of human society as a whole, but of the United States as well, because you know, um, not, not everybody had equal protection under the law. But the key is that for the last half a century, and certainly today, um, we no longer have discrimination um, under the law. People are equal under the law. Um, and, um, and, and we have to be very careful about how we, uh, where to apportion the blame. Um, I think that the business with police brutality is a is a um, is a worthwhile subject up to a point, which is to say that Americans are not Swedes or Danes or Norwegians. Our levels of violence in this country, police or no police, are much higher than what they are in countries that we look up to, such as Denmark or Sweden. In Western Europe, uh, homicide rates are 0.9 per 100,000. In our country, it's about 3.9, 3.5 per 100,000. So are the policemen too trigger happy for my liking? Yes, they are. Are they facing much more of a threat of bodily harm? Yes, they are you can make the judgment of uh, where you would fall if you had to make those calls. But I think that this is a rather complicated picture. Um, yeah, so let, let me end with that and, and let's see if there, is, if there is more on this subject. Absolutely. Uh, a similar question. I know that in hearing these kinds of conversations for the first time, one of my initial responses was, yeah, but it really does seem like lots of things are really bad right now. It seems like in many ways, lots of things aren't great. There's this combination of on the one hand, I can see the data, I can see the charts, I can see the trends, but it still feels bad. So I, I, I wonder if you might answer a little bit to the question of why is it the case that despite the overwhelming evidence that so many things are getting so much better, we still have this sense that things aren't great, right? That, that things could be so much better than they happen to be right now. Well, because we have pocketed the improvements that we have made and uh, they became our baseline. And uh, we are obviously, um, you know, judging our lives in comparison to what it was like, let's say, in 2019, you know, the glorious 2019, or maybe what it was like at the turn of the millennium when the American economy was really um, firing on all cylinders and things like that. We don't compare our lives to those of our grandparents. Um, who didn't have antibiotics and who were dying of infected blisters and who didn't have access to um, any type of good um, uh, dentistry or healthcare and who had to work many longer hours to buy food and who died young. So, you know, our, our basically our expectations have increased. Now, to make things worse from the perspective of people like me who 
push human progress is that human beings have evolved to be pessimistic. So again, we are 300,000 years old, and for most of the time, the world was much more inhospitable to our species than it is today. Uh, anything could kill us, not just poisonous food, but wild animals, uh, other tribes, and so forth. Now, if you were an optimist and you heard a rustling behind a bush and you said to yourself, oh, well, things will probably work out just fine, but in fact, there was a lion hiding behind the bush and the lion ate you, well, then the optimist got taken out of the gene pool and you didn't get to have any babies and pass your optimistic genes onto down. But if you were a... Uh, if you were a skeptic, if you were a pessimist, if you said to yourself, well, maybe there is something horrible hiding behind that bush that could eat me, and you ran away, well, then you survive to live to another day and pass your skeptical genes uh, on. So we have, we have basically evolved to be pessimistic. And it's very difficult for us with this pessimism that we have evolved for to deal with a world which is fundamentally different. We are still looking out for, um, for a lot of dangers as though we are still living uh, on the African savanna. So we are predisposed to be negative. And there are a lot of negativity biases in our brains that I describe at length on human progress, um, where you can look it up. Um, we don't have to go into details, but th th there is plenty of things that, plenty of software in our brains that make us jumpy and skeptical and pessimistic. Excellent point. Thank you, Marion. And yes, I want to again emphasize for all of you who haven't had a chance to spend much time with humanprogress.org, it's a, a fantastic wealth of information. Please do, uh, please do take some time to take a look at it. We're we're actively working to develop some additional resources on that site that we'll we'll pass out to all of you as soon as we have them together. One of the questions that came up earlier, Marion, in the, the conversation about environmental trends is the question of, it seems like whether it's carbon emissions or a variety of other measures around uh, environmental concerns, one really interesting option might be looking more at things like nuclear energy and some of the ways that that might be able to help us continue that progress in that direction. More generally, I wonder what you might, thoughts might happen to be. So you're taking a look at the environmental trends as a whole. What, where do things like nuclear energy or renewable energies or, or other power sources fit into that long-term trend of progress when it comes toward, uh, well, environmental indicators? Yeah. Well, so let's start by basically agreeing. Let's assume that we have a broad agreement amongst all of us that climate change is happening and that something should be done about it. Uh, I realize that you know, not everybody agrees on that, but, you know, uh, this seems to be where the conversation starts these days, so let's start there. It seems to me that there are two ways in which climate change, global warming, uh, can be addressed, or rather there are two schools of thought. One is the restrictionist school of thought, people who believe that the answer to climate change is A, having fewer people in the world, and B, having those people use fewer resources. Smaller cars, shorter trips, no international travel, um, less, uh, less consumption, basically, consume less. Um, there are a lot of problems with this school of thought. The first is, 
that people in rich countries live in democracies and they choose their politicians and they are not going to really vote for people and maintain them in power who are going to tell them uh, that you have to cut your consumption and you have to give up the good life or whatever remains of the good life that you think you had. And then of course you have the second half of the world's population who are poor and who are desperately trying to get up to our levels of consumption. And it seems to me a non-starter to tell those people that you shouldn't strive for all the good things that we have in the West um, because it's A, impractical, impossible, and immoral. So I don't think that the restrictionist school is going to succeed. It may well be that uh, you know some legislation in the short term is going to be passed, which is along the restrictionist lines, but that will only generate a political backlash. So you know, so we are we are destined to be on this sort of yo-yo between Republicans and Democrats uh, doing their thing on the environment, but within a certain range, uh, executive orders, things like that. Um, the second school of thought is one which talks about adaptation and about technological solutions to global warming. So let's talk about adaptation first. What do I mean by adaptation? Well, that you adapt to the changing climate. Um, one third of the country of Holland is under the water level because the Dutch over the last 500 years have been, um, have been drying land, reclaiming land from the North Sea um, and turning it into profitable pasture and later into residential, residential buildings. Now, Holland was doing this when it was poorer than most African countries are today. And when technology, when technology that the Dutch used was much, much more primitive than is, than is available to people today. Yes, oceans seem to be rising. They are rising very, very slowly. And there is no reason why countries around the world who are or which are richer and more technological savvy than the Dutch were in 1500 shouldn't be able to pull off what the Dutch did half a millennium ago. So that's what I mean when I talk about adaptation. When it comes to technological change, yes, we do. Humanity is in possession of a technology, has been for the last 75 years, that is capable of producing enough energy for everyone and not produce any CO2. It's called nuclear energy. We've had it for almost, well, for three quarters of a century. For reasons which are too complicated to get to, but safety is not one of them, um, nuclear is not being used. It is still heavily opposed. Um, and, uh, but, but that is the solution in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the medium term. In the long run, 20, 40 years from now, I'm hoping that we'll be able to come up with fusion reactors, which are even safer than fission reactors, which we currently have. But bottom line is we should be, we should be aiming for that sort of thing, for fusion or fission reactors and, and, and do that. That is a much, much better way of spending money than subsidizing windmills and solar for a variety of reasons. It's not just that solar and wind energy is unreliable, but also, of course, it is not 
no matter what people say, it is not particularly environmentally friendly. All those windmills need to be built with fossil fuels, uh, a lot of chemicals, a lot of uh, concrete, a lot of iron, a lot of other things that go into production of those things. Disposal of solar panels, again, not an environmentally uh, friendly thing to do. And in addition to that, after all the trillions of dollars that have been poured into, um, into renewable, right now, I believe that um, solar and wind combine produce something like 1.3% of all the energy consumed on Earth. So this is not the way to go forward. The way to go forward is to build more nuclear plants in the, in the, in the short to medium term and then switch to, um, switch to fission. And if you cannot do that, switch to fusion. And if you cannot do that, then for goodness sake, at least switch from coal and from oil to natural gas, because that in itself will cut your CO2 emissions in half. Very, lots of lots of very good conversation happening in the chat. I want to make a, a quick shout out to a question that Janice raised that I think is going to be uh, a really useful one for other educators to talk to. And then I actually want to ask you a slightly different question. So Janice mentions in the chat, and then I'd love the other educators to, to bounce around on that one. Uh, I'll, I'll skip over the context briefly, but how can Optimus engage our communities to create more partnerships and increase resources for teachers and all stakeholders? In a pandemic, when internships have been put on hold, how do you suggest we connect students to real world experiences? Again, probably not a question for you, Marion, but I wanna encourage other educators to, to really jump on that question as much as they can and, and, and engage in that in the chat. Uh, what I'm interested in hearing a little bit more, Marion, is another topic that you cover at Human Progress, but also in the book, and that's this question of uh, literacy rates in the world. I know it's uh, it's something that often in the United States we can seem to take for granted. Of course, so many people can read, but it's really, I think, a tremendous sign of the progress that we've seen in the world. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about some of the, the research that you've been able to do to show, well, where... Where are literacy rates? How are they trending? And what does that say more broadly about progress in that area of education? Well, uh, the, uh, there are really only two points to mention on, on literacy. I mean, literacy has obviously been expanding uh, for a number of reasons. Um, okay, so <laughs> obviously in, 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 in developed uh, Western countries, uh, literacy really takes off in the late 18th century and during the 19th century. And that's powered really by the Industrial Revolution, because as Industrial Revolution puts more money in the pockets of parents, uh, they are able to send their children to school. And as agriculture gets industrialized, um, then you can take the children off the land and you can send them to school. So industrialization uh, was absolutely key to Western uh, literacy levels improving in the 19th century. Um, literacy had to wait uh, until after the Second World War in most of the developing or poor countries. Um, it is only then that they started to industrialize. It is only then that agriculture stopped being such an important component of economic output. And you are able to take the children out of the land and put them in schools. Um, but the bottom line is that literacy rates have been improving right now in the poorest place in the world, poorest continent in the world, which is Sub-Saharan Africa, something like 66 or 70% of people can read and write. Now, now Africa cannot reach 
100% at the moment because there are very old people who never learned how to read and write who are never going to go back to school. They are going to remain illiterate until they die. But the, the young people, there's certainly no reason why they shouldn't read and write. Um, and uh, again, as I said, uh, in, in, in a place as poor as Sub-Saharan Africa, already uh, close to 70% of people can read and write, which is tremendous. And there has been a great equalization of educational opportunities and literacy between boys and girls, which, which certainly wasn't the case uh, originally. Uh, uh, women education was always a bit of a afterthought uh, that goes back to antiquity. Um, but really right now, there is, there is close to a parity between uh, boys and girls at school and literacy rate between sexes. So I wanted to build off of a point that you just brought up and you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Africa in many ways seems like a, a particularly challenging continent, right? Whether that's some of the issues with the lack of progress around tree cover that you mentioned early on in the slide, but also some of the challenges that have happened historically, whether that's through uh, colonial expansion and the and the aftermaths of that, including uh, conflict today and some of the long-term trends with health issues like HIV, AIDS, and Sub-Saharan Africa in particular. Africa seems like a tough case, right? So when we look at uh, Western Europe, we look at North America, America, in many ways, we see lots of progress. But if you take a look and sort of just isolate Africa as a whole, where, where do things stand now, right? From your from your point of view and what you've taken a look at, where are there signs of optimism and, and where's there still really a tremendous need for uh, well, substantially more progress? Well, it's much better than what it was 20 years ago. I mean, uh, what happened in Africa after independence in the 1960s is that Africa embraced all the wrong um, economic uh, and political institutions. Um, and then after a rather good decade of the 70s, it had a horrible de decade of the 80s and the 90s. Um, but with the collapse of communism and the end of the superpower competition and, um, and, and a reduction in, in, in really foreign aid in the late 1980s, early 1990s, a lot of these countries uh, realized that they had to reform more of them embraced some form of multi-party democracy. Um, even when I was at school, I went to school in Johannesburg in South Africa, and even when I was at school, at university, it, it was taken for granted that, that you shouldn't join the global economy because it was exploitative, that you shouldn't welcome uh, foreign direct investment because it was exploitative, that you shouldn't have multinational corporations in your country um, because they would exploit the domestic workforce. Um, all of that is gone. Um, and, and unless you're talking about some real basket cases like Zimbabwe, most African countries now have embraced globalization, have embraced uh, trade liberalization, uh, are welcoming and are competing for more international investment and multinational corporations. And indeed, Africa had a very good decade of the of the noughties between 2000 and, um, uh, you know, even into, uh, I would go as far as saying it had pretty good two decades. Uh, growth averaged about 5% per year, which is which is tremendous. If you can keep that going for a long time, you can achieve a lot of good. And um, so, so 
one of the one of the reasons I think why there is so much pessimism about Africa in particular and about the world in general is very often people's impressions about what the world is like are about 20 years off. And uh, very often people will remember things they learn at school and they don't update their uh, their their information. And uh, but the world keeps changing and, uh, you know, individual human beings are attempting to improve their lives and the lives of their families. And so unless you have some crazy politician um, or, or, you know, imposing crazy political or economic system and taking the country back, um, you know, there is there is enough reason to expect that there is a natural growth, natural progression toward prosperity if you just leave people alone. Thanks, Marian. A couple of the, the conversations and questions have hit uh, incidentally on the question of uh, well, women, the, the status of women in the world. And I think uh, it'd be interesting to hear some of what you've seen if you take a look at the the way in which women have made progress, of course, the over the course of the last couple of centuries and some of the things in front of us, whether that's things like um, the number of women in politics and elected leaders or the advancement in women's rights in a number of different ways. What, what are some of the relevant trends, whether in the book or what you cover at Human Progress, that might be useful to talk about on the, the advance of women and their condition in the world? Yeah, um, look, women were always treated as second-class citizens. In ancient Greece, they had no rights at all. Uh, in Rome, they did have some rights. They could inherit property and so forth, but nowhere near equality. Um, we do have some famous uh, female monarchs uh, in Europe uh, throughout over the last 2,000 years, but, but ordinary women were never treated equally um until until really uh the 19th century with new zealand being the first country which gave women the rights to vote i believe in 1893 by the way does anybody know which was the state in the union which gave in the united states which gave which gave women the vote first it will surprise you it was the state of wyoming <laughs> Yeah, but, looks like uh, we had uh, a couple of a uh, couple of our participants they? got it right. Yeah, uh, Catherine and Sean both uh, both noted Wyoming. I did fabulous. not know that. Uh, fabulous. But here's the thing. Look, rights for women, rights for black people, rights for gays and lesbians. They had to wait for a birth of an idea. And this idea was basically the idea that emerges in Western Europe in the late, in, in the second to late half of the 18th century. And it's the idea of the enlightenment, the idea of classical liberalism, which basically says that all people should be treated equally under the law. Now, obviously this idea, this, these ideas of the enlightenment are not embraced immediately. And God knows they are not embraced everywhere in the world. In fact, there are still places in the world where the, uh, where the Enlightenment has not enlightened. But, but the reality is that rights, equality for women, black people, brown people, gays and lesbians and so forth, the notion of equality, the notion that all people are equal under the law, it's a new idea. It really didn't exist in the comprehension of human minds until, until the late 18th century. 
And so it is not surprising that um, all these quote unquote equalities didn't happen before that time. Um, uh, but I'm glad they did. Uh, I think that the Australian philosopher Peter Singer talks about it uh, as the uh, ever increasing circles of empathy, um, which, which keep on embracing more and more people who are not like quote unquote us. I'm not a woman, uh, but women are now within my circle of empathy. A thousand years ago, they wouldn't be. I'm not black, but black people are within my circle of empathy, um, whereas a thousand years they wouldn't be, and so on and so forth. So my point is something fundamental has changed in the world in the late 18th century, and it was the birth of the Enlightenment and the notion that all people are equal before the law. It was a fundamental change. I think it's been a, a fascinating change for sure. And it, it, an extraordinary question why that, that observation didn't come sooner to the world. Like I can imagine there's a, a great deal of scholarship to dig into why that was the case. Uh, a couple of the, the points in the chat, uh, I wanna make sure to hit this, have talked about technology. Technology and the role that it plays in the world more broadly, but also, and I think importantly, technology and education, right? So. For so many of our educators right now, they're faced with a world where this is the, the way in which they can engage their students. It's, it's different, it's challenging, and in many ways it feels, feels very difficult, right? Okay. Uh, so I guess the, the question that I'd love to pose to you, Marion, and of course, feel free to, to take it in the direction that makes the most sense is, when we think about technology, and we think about technology as it relates to progress, and to the extent that you can, education specifically, in what ways does it help get things better? Right. In what ways has it led to a measure of progress which have improved people's lives? So in my last answer, I talked about intellectual progress or ideological progress, or if you will, philosophical progress. But when it comes to economic progress, it's all technology. Every economic growth is technology. It is our ability to create new ways of um, we no longer kill whales for lighting. We don't make we don't make candles out of whales uh, out of whales. We now we now use nuclear power. Um, you know we no longer use sails that take us seven weeks to get from London to New York. We now fly on a Concorde in three hours or what have you. My point is um, technology is incredibly important to economic growth, um, and. Um, um, and uh, when it comes to when it comes to education, I'm simply not. I'm, I don't want to go into that because I'm not a specialist. I will leave it up to you. I, I, I in general, I'm I'm kind of glad to see where it's going because you know certainly the classroom that I had in the 80s and the 90s wasn't all that different from the classroom that people in Germany had in the 1880s and the 1890s. So um, you know having more access to uh, computers. I mean, to see kids of five and even younger interact with tablets and iPhones and whatever, uh, it's quite extraordinary. So I, I doubt that the world will be the same. The, the technology out there and access of people to technology, children, is, is, is tremendous. And it's probably on balance for the better. Although 
you know, we have to be a really, uh, okay, how about I put it this way? Not everything in the world is getting better for everyone everywhere at all times. That would be a miracle. And what is not getting better, I think, is some of the negative effects of social media on the children. So I want to uh, make one quick comment and then, then pose a last question to Marion. Uh, and I think what's exciting to see is that as awful as the pandemic has been and as difficult as the situation has been for educators, what I think is extraordinary is the way in which educators have responded by transforming their approach to education, by saying there's a new way in front of us and there's a new set of opportunities that allows us to take a different view toward how we help our students grow, how we help them learn and how we help them get there. And I think that's that's incredible. I think a conversation for a different day, but I wanted to pause and note that, that uh, sometimes uh, the necessity of the situation really ends up being a miraculous opportunity for change that allows us to lead to, to such better, better opportunities and better approaches. But my last question for you, Marion, for the, for the evening is, uh, you mentioned just now that, that, of course, not everything is getting better for everyone at all the times and all the ways. I think I'd love to hear sort of uh, one on each side, that is to say, what leaves you optimistic, right? When you think about all of the work of, that you're doing when it comes to progress, the trends in the world, the ways that our things are getting so much better, what's one thing that you pause and say, for you personally, that what, that's what makes me so excited? And then conversely, what's, what's one thing that leaves you pessimistic? What's one challenge that you see in front of us that says, as great as progress is, this is still really hard and, and we have a ways to go? Well, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a person whose thinking has been heavily influenced by the thinkers of the Enlightenment. And what worries me greatly is that we are departing um, from the basic tenets of the Enlightenment. Uh, the chief among them is freedom of speech. Uh, freedom of speech is incredibly important because if you cannot express yourself, um, you cannot point to, well, you cannot point when a society is going in, different, in, in the wrong direction, you feel that the society is going in the wrong direction, but you cannot say so. Um, that's bad because then the society can go off the cliff and uh, nobody, can, nobody can prevent that from happening because there is no freedom of speech. I grew up in a communist country where uh, <laughs> we were going off the cliff, but um, nobody could say anything so you know we couldn't we couldn't really address that but also freedom of speech is incredibly important to scientific and economic development which is to say that if you cannot speak your mind and you can if you cannot do your research and what have you then uh, then uh, it, it is difficult to really create more technological and economic progress so freedom of speech is incredibly important um i would say um Another aspect of the environment, which seems to me under 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 assault, is uh, equality before the law. I think it's very important that we should embrace, uh, re-embrace equality before the law. Um, uh, protection of property, uh, again, very important aspect of uh, of the Enlightenment values. Um, so I'm I'm really worried that we are sort of um, departing. From, from these enlightenment values. I see a lot of attacks on, uh, on reason, on science, people saying that, you know, who needs reason? Who needs reasoned arguments? You can just shut down your opponents by shutting them down. That's, that's not the way forward. So 
that sort of worries me. What excites me, I see a lot of very interesting research in uh, in um, uh, medical sciences, not just COVID, but of course uh, a lot of artificial intelligence and supercomputers, which could potentially deliver, um, which could potentially eliminate even more diseases than that have already been eliminated, and potentially even extend life, and even make us quote unquote immortal. Um, I think that um, the ability to slow down aging and to possibly even reverse it is certainly within our grasp. And so that's what makes me excited, not just that we'll be able to live longer, but also that we'll be able to live longer and healthier um, uh, because of these tremendous advances, be it uh, CRISPR-Cas9 or this new deep thought uh, artificial intelligence supercomputer, which was able to discover how uh, enzymes and proteins are folded. That was something that befuddled humanity for 50 years, but it got resolved yesterday. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on in, in medical and biomedical sciences that I'm excited about. Marion, thank you so much for the, the really insightful conversation and for speaking with us tonight. Uh, I wanted to, to close with a, a few really quick notes uh, for all of you. One, again, uh, please do take a look at the book when it arrives. I think it's a fantastic resource. It's designed to be a, a coffee table book, so to speak. It's a, a way of charts and seeing and taking a look and understanding things at a glance, but there's so much wonderful information in there. And if you're interested in learning more about that, please, by all means, do go check out humanprogress.org. There's so many fascinating related stories and articles and excellent pieces there. It's a, a tremendous resource. I also wanted to note, many of you have already seen it. We're hosting an event next week, Tuesday evening, again, with our friends at iCivics, the Bill of Rights Institute and the National Constitution Center. It's gonna be a conversation uh, with Clark Neely from the Cato Institute, with Carrie Sautner from the National Constitution Center, and the former Chief of Police of Camden, New Jersey, J. Scott Thompson. Should be a fantastic evening talking about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the way that we think about criminal justice in America really looking forward to that conversation. Please do, by all means, attend, as well as share that one widely. I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation for so many of your colleagues and students as well. Uh, finally, two quick thoughts to close out. One, I really wanted to uh, shout out to our friend, uh, Urshad Manji, who's here with us tonight. She works with the organization Let Grow. She's been a, a fantastic conversationalist in the, in the chat box. We're going to be doing some work with her and with her organization coming up. So, be on the lookout for that. If you haven't yet read her fantastic book, Don't Label Me, I strongly, strongly recommend it. It's a, a tremendous treatment of many of the same themes that we talk about in Sphere, but also the topics that we've talked about tonight. Finally, let me conclude by saying thank you. Again, as always, you've all been a tremendous audience asking some fantastic and I think challenging questions along the way and often really embodying the sphere that we want to incorporate through sphere as a whole. And that is productive civil discourse, even when we agree as a means of really bringing forward an opportunity for us to grow and work together. You're all incredible. And thank you for the work that you do as educators and bringing about the next generation of Americans to think about a world in which they can engage with each other better and more thoughtfully. With that, I'm going to close for the evening. Thank you all so much again, as always. We'll be back in touch very soon and looking forward to engaging with you all next week if you can be there. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much.